All right. Well, we are continuing in our summer reading list series, and the first series underneath of that is a study in Hebrews. It's an overview of the book of Hebrews called Jesus is Better. And so each week we've been looking at some of the specific ways that Jesus is far superior than any of the examples of of great men and women of God and, and great servants of God that came before him, that all the things we see in the Old Testament through ritual and and observance and sacrifice and through priest and prophet. They all point to Jesus and everything about him is far, far superior than them or anything after him. That he is the pinnacle of what it means to see something that is the best. He is the ultimate. He is the ultimate good and the ultimate best in every way. And we actually recently have spent two weeks looking at just the, the superior priesthood of Jesus. It took two weeks, and really we could take a lot longer than that, um, but that was just about the, the minimum that we could give to his incredible priesthood and all that's wrapped up in that. And today, we want to actually talk now about his sacrifice, about the sacrifice of our Savior. And truly, Christ's sacrifice is a better sacrifice than any other sacrifice that ever came before him or pointed to him. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. And uh, we're going to start with verses 1 through 4, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Here's what the writer has to say in these opening verses. He says, For since the law, that's also the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, that's all wrapped up in that phrase, the law, okay? The former things. Since the law has but a shadow... That's form without substance. That's what a shadow is. It's, uh, it's a picture of the good things to come instead of the true form or the absolute reality of all of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So he's saying the the Old Testament, the law, the covenant, all those sacrificial systems that Israel would have known very well that had thousands of years of observing. Remember, he's writing to Jewish people. That's why the book's called Hebrews. That's why the letter is called that. He's writing to Jewish Christians scattered throughout the, the whole Roman Empire, most of which are experiencing persecution and discouragement. And so this is very familiar to them. He's saying all this, this old way of coming to God, the, the way in which you went about your religious service and duties, the sacrificial system, all that, it was, it was good. There wasn't anything wrong with it, but it was, it was a shadow. It was a picture of all the good things to come instead of being the absolute or, or truest, purest form of the reality that all of that was trying to point you to. And he's saying because of that, because it was a form lacking substance, because it was a picture lacking power, all of those sacrifices that had to be offered this over and over again, just the same thing over day in, day out, year in, year out, they weren't able to make perfect those who drew near to God through them. So it pointed them to perfection. It pointed them to God. It allowed them kind of a a temporary 
standing with God, but not a full standing. And it didn't make them perfect. It didn't make them completely righteous. It didn't solve the problem. It didn't deal with what needed to be dealt with. You know, it, it's kind of like uh, if we were to find a, a picture of a vacation we all wanted to go on. You know, uh, let's say we, we found it online or we found it in a book. We got our family together and we said, hey, let's look at this picture. Doesn't this look like a great vacation to go on? Doesn't this look awesome? And everybody said, oh, yeah, this looks like a fantastic vacation. And everybody agreed. But instead of actually going on the vacation, you spent the whole week just looking at the picture. I mean, pretty pointless, right? And certainly nobody would spend a lot of money to just look at a picture, they would, they would say, that's insane. No, we need to, if we're going to spend the money and we're going to see this, this picture of what could be, let's go do it. Let's make it happen. Nobody pays a hundred and some thousand dollars just to drive by and park and look at a house they would like to live in. Right? Nobody does that. No, you invest the money in, in what you have seen and the pictures you saw and, and then seeing it firsthand and then you, you eventually go in and live in it, right? And you inhabit it. You enjoy it. You embrace that and that becomes your home and, and you're, you built it up around you. So that's what's going on here. And the writer is saying, hey, the, all these, these things that came before, this, this sacrificial system, it, I mean, it was good and it had a point, it had a point and it had a purpose, but it couldn't perfect. It couldn't perfect those that were under it. So let's go on. Um, he said, you know, it, it couldn't make perfect those who draw near by way of the sacrifice. Verse 2, it's an important statement here to elaborate on that. Verse 2, he says this, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? That's pretty sound logic right there. In other words, if, if all of those sacrifices, or if any one of those old sacrifices before Christ, if any one of them were sufficient in themselves to perfect the worshipers that came and, and were submitted underneath that sacrificial system, then there would be no need for them to continue after that point. But the fact that they did have to continue on and on and on, it showed that no matter how good and proper they were, no matter how obedient the people were to make the sacrifices, it was never enough to bring them all the way to God. It was never enough to make them fully righteous. It was never enough to perfect them. And so they had to keep going and they had to keep going because, well, if... If they ever had their, their awareness of their own sinfulness answered and addressed and dealt with, they wouldn't keep making these sacrifices. It just stands to reason. Verse 3, but since that's not true, here's, here's what is true of those sacrifices. In these sacrifices, these old covenant sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So you... These people, I mean, it was, it was really a, a heavy, heavy load that they had to bear. They made these sacrifices, which pictured an ultimate sacrifice to come, but was not in itself powerful enough to really deal with the sin 
not to take it off of them and take it away. And so they, they did this to obey God, and they did this as a way of covering temporarily the sin issue that they had. But it never actually dealt with it or erased it or wiped it away. All it did actually was remind them all the time of just how sinful they were. And every time they made a sacrifice, it reminded them of the need they had for it. And then it also reminded them that this would not be it. That they'd have to do the same thing again and again and again. And all it was was just this glaring statement of their own sinfulness... And their own inability to do anything about it. And the inability that any priest had to take care of what really needed to be taken care of. And verse 4 tells us why that's true. Look at what it says. For it is impossible. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away Sins. See, they only covered. They only all, all the blood of the bulls and goats and lambs and all that sacrifice, it only covered sin. It was like a band-aid over a wound. It didn't actually heal the problem. It didn't get to the root cause. It might have kind of covered over the symptom a little bit, but it didn't cure the underlying cause. It only covered the sin, and only temporarily, because only Jesus, the Lamb of God, could take away sin. He's the only one that could. That's why when John the Baptist, when Jesus came on the scene and and started his ministry by getting baptized himself, John looked and he said, look, there he is. There's the one I've been telling you about throughout my ministry. There's the one all the prophets have prophesied about and testified about. That He's the one that all of the Old Testament and all of the, the sacrifices and the entire covenant pointed to. There he is, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Only Jesus could fit that. Only Jesus could fit that. And all these sacrifices that came before him, they couldn't save. All of those sacrifices throughout the Old Testament, through under the law and under the covenant, they just they couldn't save. They pictured, but they could not perfect. And therefore, they lacked really true, ultimate power. And they pointed to the one that had that and that would provide that. Well, Continuing on with the same line of thought about the, the temporary nature of the old versus the, the permanent nature of, of Christ and his ministry, his priesthood that we looked at last week and the week before, and his sacrifice that we're talking about today, look at verse 11, Hebrews 10, 11. And it, just, it continues the same picture that we're seeing here. It says this, And every priest... This is talking about the, you know, the old priest, the high priest under the old law and the old covenant. Every priest stands daily, stands daily, that's important, at his service, offering repeatedly, catch that, okay, repeatedly, the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. He's already established that, but it bears repeating. We, we need to all get that into our heads. We need to understand that and remember that. But when Christ, 
had offered for all time, and that actually extends to all eternity, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, they all had to offer repeated offerings and sacrifices, thousands and thousands of sacrifices over the centuries. But he, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So if you're in Christ today, if He is your Savior and Lord, and you can say that without a doubt, praise the Lord for for that, and understand, before the Father, because you are in Christ, and because you are covered by Him, by His righteousness, and under His blood, the Father sees you already as perfect. He already sees you as complete, as totally righteous. But... You and I are still living our existence in this skin, this flesh, and in this time, in the temporal. We haven't caught up yet to eternity. So positionally and eternally, before God the Father, we are perfected because of Christ. But right here and now, we're still in the process of sanctification. We're still in the process of being made like Christ. We're still in the process of being set apart. Of, of being fashioned and formed into that beautiful, perfect image of Christ. So our, our existence and our sanctification just hasn't quite caught up yet to what is true in heaven. That's what's going on here. But it's an amazing thought. And that church, that's the encouragement that each of us has to keep going into the process of sanctification. To keep letting the Spirit have His way in us. To keep working in us. To know that at one point we will finally catch up to what is already settled in heaven. But in the meantime, we're still a work in progress. But the end should motivate us to keep going. And to endure. And to keep allowing that work of sanctification. As hard and as messy as it is, we should be willing to let it happen and to embrace it and to pursue it. Knowing the end result. And isn't it great to know that, that there was just there was one single act and work, one single sacrifice on the part of Christ that, that ended the need for all other sacrifices? Isn't that fantastic? I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if we in our lives were able to find some device or some method, some invention that you, you only had to wash all of your clothes one time and then you never had to wash them again? No matter what happened, like they'd be just clean. Bing, bing, bing. That'd be great, right? Or, or uh, one, one lawnmower that somehow was able to make the grass stay perfectly level and wonderfully green without having to get out and actually mow it again. I mean, that'd be great. And, and one piece of food that when you, when you ate this, you would never actually be hungry and you'd be fully satisfied forever without ever worrying about your weight or anything. I mean, all those would be fantastic products, right? Well, obviously, that's not going to happen. Certainly not anytime soon. But 
in, in Christ, in Christ, the sacrifice that we all have need of being made on our behalf, the sacrifice that all of, of the, the people of the faith that came before us all through the centuries and, and through the thousands of years before Christ, all those that lived before us after Christ, the sacrifice that every sinner needed to be declared righteous before God, the sacrifice that was needed to bring people to God, to have him look at them and say, I accept you, I love you, I, my favor now can rest upon you. Come and, and know me as father instead of judge. The sacrifice that all of humanity needs is found and fulfilled and met and offered in Jesus Christ. He is the one and only. In him we have one Savior. One sacrifice by that Savior. And as a result of that sacrifice, one salvation. One Savior one sacrifice, one salvation. That's why it is so heartbreaking, and it should be heartbreaking to all of us who are in Christ, to see millions of people all throughout the world still pursuing and clinging to and trusting in a system or a process or a person other than and outside of Christ. And millions of people are still doing it. They're, they're following a, a pattern of of works. They're really still following a, a sacrificial system. Maybe they don't sacrifice, you know, literal animals, but it's the same concept as, as when people uh, say, I've got I've to do this certain thing and do it a certain way, and I've got I've to make sure I, I meet this certain standard, and, and I've got to dress a certain way, and I have to eat a certain way, and I, I have to pray a certain way, and, and so many times a day facing a certain direction. Or I have to go out and walk streets and knock on, on so many doors and give so many pieces of literature out for me to be accepted and to be, to be favored. And I can't have any caffeine because that, that'll exclude me from the blessing of God. Or people that um, believe that Christ is the, the only Savior and, and they believe that and, and they say that they've given Him their lives, but then they still operate throughout their lives in a way that God will only like me as long as I'm good enough. As long as I, I do so many you know, spiritual disciplines and habits enough. And that's how God likes me. And that's how I have God's favor. But if I, if I neglect that or if I drop the ball, oh, he doesn't like me anymore. And, and all throughout the world we see people that are pursuing some dead teacher or dead leader or dead prophet. And who are following a collection of man-made truth, which is not truth at all, and saying, that's, that's what I need to know God. That's what I need to have favor from God. That's what I need to know that I have a, a place in heaven, whatever heaven is in that way. And we have people, as I said, much closer to home, people who would say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, I know that Christ died for my sins, but instead of resting fully on the finished work of Christ, their security and their identity is found in a performance-based religion. And you know people like that. Maybe that was you. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you, you, you gave your, your life to Christ and you asked Him to be your Savior and Lord of your life. 
but you just for a long time weren't able to rest fully on that work. And you felt like you had to still do things. And you had to meet still a certain external standard for God to approve of you and like you. That's called legalism. See, it's not limited to the world cults and the world false religions. So many times we get distracted from and are guilty of neglecting the one Savior and the one sacrifice and the one salvation we have in that Savior who gave the one sacrifice for it. So many times we allow our hopes and our faith and our security and our identity and and our standing before God, we can allow it to rest on things other than Christ. That's why we need this reminder. Just like the original people reading this letter needed the reminder, hey, don't keep chasing these sacrifices. Don't keep chasing these futile things that can't save. There's no need for this anymore. It's all been met in Christ. One sacrifice to end all others. Pursue that. Look to that. Cling to that. That's why Paul said when he came to the Corinthians, I resolved while I was among you to preach nothing else but Christ crucified. It's because there's no other name and no other work that will make you what you need to be before God, which is his very own son or daughter. Nothing else. It's Christ alone. We need that reminder, church, just like anyone else. And we need to understand, too, what is, what is meant by sacrifice. We, we hear that word. We, we understand that term intellectually. But most of us have never had to really give a weighty sacrifice. Some, some have, right? But most of us have not had to experience what it is to actually sacrifice in, in, a, in a big, major heart-wrenching type way. The way that the Christ sacrificed, the way the Father felt as He allowed His Son to, to be sacrificed, as He sacrificed His Son. Few of us will ever understand even close to that, to the weight of that. There's a, a story that, um, that I know and, and that I've read many times and it, it gets me every time and it's, it's about someone who did fully as much as any human being could, fully understand what it means to actually go through a sacrifice and, and to make a sacrifice for the sake of others. To make a sacrifice of what is precious to you so that others can enjoy life and have life. It's one of the, the most incredible examples, true to life examples of, of a human um, experiencing the agony of of a sacrifice, and probably the closest a human could ever get to understanding what, what God understood and how he felt and what happened with Jesus. Uh, in 1937, there was a man named John Griffith, and uh, he and his family, 1837, excuse me, um, he, he made his, his way uh, east from being out in the Rockies, and, um, and he, he started settling down, and he was very, very young, and um, he, he didn't have kids for a while, and then he, he finally did uh, have children, 
And right around the time of close to the, the Great Depression era, he finally had, um, had made his, you know, his fortune, so to speak, his, his purpose uh, by operating uh, an important drawbridge over the Mississippi River. And uh, this, was, this was the drawbridge that allowed all these big steamships you know, to come through the river and to transport goods. And he had to listen for the trains that came uh, and make sure that the drawbridge was down when trains were coming through, make sure the drawbridge was up for the ships to come through. And it was all on a schedule. Well, one day, he, he let his very little boy, his son's name was Greg, he let him come to work with him. And he thought that his son would enjoy seeing all the ships passing through, seeing the trains come by, you know. And so uh, he made sure that the, the last of the, of the ships were coming through and the drawbridge was up for them. And he decided he was just going to let the drawbridge remain up because he had some time. So he and his son were, were just sitting on the on the observation deck and they were looking out over the water and they were talking and they were eating their lunch and time got away from them. And all of a sudden, John heard the sound of a train whistle in the distance. And it startled him because he thought, well, that shouldn't happen. Why are they coming now? And he he pulled out his pocket watch and he saw 107. That was the time. And he immediately panicked because that was the same time that the Memphis Express was supposed to be coming through. It was one of the largest passenger trains of that day. Had over 400 people on it. And they were coming fast. And he heard the whistles growing closer and growing closer. And so he looked to make sure there weren't any ships underneath the bridge so that he could lower it. But as he looked to make sure that was true, he caught a sight over in the distance and it, it froze him in his tracks and it, it caused instant panic to come through every fiber of his being. What he saw was his little boy who had fallen down in the gears of the drawbridge. Apparently, the little boy had followed after his dad as he went back to the control room from the catwalk, and he fell off the catwalk, and he fell into the gear mechanism. And his leg was caught, and he was calling out to his his dad. But the train was getting closer. And he heard the whistles growing louder and louder. By now he could see the smokestack and he could see the train coming closer. So he's looking back at the train. He was looking at his son. And he was trying to think of, of any scenario where he could get down to his son and get him out and get back in time to lower the drawbridge so that the train could pass safely. But as the seconds went by, which felt like an eternity for him, he knew there was absolutely nothing that he could do. And so... In the most agonizing decision of his life, he looked from his son, and he looked back at the control booth, and as he buried his head in his arm, he lowered the great lever that caused those gears to turn, that caused the drawbridge to close, thus killing his son. And as the train safely passed over the track on top of the bridge totally consumed with with agony and with with grief and with anger, he screamed at the train as he saw the people in the windows passing by his booth. Don't you know what I did for you? Don't you see? Don't you care that I sacrificed my son for you so that you could live? Of course they didn't hear him. And he saw wealthy ladies in in their dress and their hats 
having tea together. He saw men playing cards. He saw little children his son's age dipping their spoon into big bowls of ice cream. And they went on their way, life as normal, not knowing that a tremendous sacrifice had just been made on their behalf so they could keep on going and having life. My friends, that is a very fitting picture and example of exactly what was done for us through our Savior and His one sacrifice. Only that Savior, that Son, didn't just randomly, accidentally fall into the sacrifice. He willingly jumped into it. He jumped into the gears. And His Father so that he could be our father, he also lowered the lever, so to speak. And God Almighty sacrificed his one and only son all so that we could have life. Don't ever take for granted the sacrifice of our Savior for us. Don't ever miss the weight and the power of it. And also, don't, don't miss the agony that had to be crushing the eternal Father's heart as He crushed His Son for our sake. What is the result of this incredible sacrifice of our Savior? What is this make possible and make true for all of us who come to him, look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 23. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 23. Therefore, in other words, in light of all of, of what has been said, in light of all of that being true, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, by the blood of Jesus. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, which no one in the Old Testament was able to come anywhere near. No one could come into the holy places. Not even by the, the, the sanctified blood of the goats and, and lambs and bulls. It, it wasn't enough to allow anybody access. That, that didn't happen. But since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And I have to pause just for a minute to let you see what's going on here. This is referencing the old, huge veil that was present in the tabernacle first and then in both temples. And it separated all the worshipers and all the rest of the tabernacle and temple from the Holy of Holies. Huge, huge curtain that no one but the high priest could enter and only then once a year on the Day of Atonement. It kept everyone out from fully coming in with confidence to the presence of God. And if anyone came into, through that curtain into the Holy of Holies, they would be instantly struck dead, including the high priest, if he came on any other day but the Day of Atonement. 
But when Jesus died on the cross, when that one Savior made that one sacrifice for the one salvation we all needed, when he died on the cross, as he cried out with a loud voice and gave up his spirit to the Father, the Bible tells us that the curtain split in two from top to bottom, as if God himself reached down with his hands and tore the curtain so that he said to all, including us today, come in, enter in. That's what our Savior, our sacrifice, made possible for us. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And, verse 21, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, which we spent a couple weeks talking about, here's what all that means for us. Verse 22, Let us draw near with a true heart, a sincere heart, not pretending, not going through the motions, but a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. And the way we can have full assurance of faith as we come before Almighty God is not because of anything we do or anything we possess. It's not because of any system or what anybody else has done for us. We have assurance of faith, church, because of what Jesus has done and because of who He is. We come with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, which is what the priests would have done. They they did that on on everything that was offered. They sprinkled blood to to purify and to cleanse and to sanctify. They they sprinkled blood on the worshipers to, to symbolically make them clean before God. It wasn't anything, as we've said, that that actually permanently happened. It was all a picture. But we, in Christ, because of him, we have been permanently fully sprinkled clean by his blood. So with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. That's why we can hold fast the confession of our hope. We hold fast the confession of our hope not because of circumstances being right, not because of of all the, the things we want to just fall into place that it does. And, and so we can we trust in just a, a really good life. We're living our best life now. That's not why we hold fast our hope. We don't hold fast our hope because of our, of our health or our prosperity or all the things we know and all the things we can do. We hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because of the faithfulness of our God as seen on display for all of eternity in the person and work of Christ. And church, we can only hold fast because he is holding on to us. The only reason you can hold fast to the hope you have in Christ and to the faith you have in him, the only reason you can hold fast on that, no matter what comes against you, is because he is holding fast to you. And that is what allows us to weather all the different storms that we might be faced in our lives. We can know that we are secure in all the things that rage against us because we have an all-sufficient Savior and an all-sufficient sacrifice. So we hold fast and we carry on. We hold fast and we carry on. But we also... We also need to make sure... That we remember. That we remember. 
Yes, we need to, to, to hold fast to the hope we have and, and keep pressing on and keep going forward with and for Christ. But we also need to make sure we look back and we remember all he did for us, making the life that we have in him and, and all that we know in him and because of him. We need to remember all that, we made, that he made possible for us. We need to remember the depth and the weight and the power and the agony of his sacrifice on our behalf. We need to remember. We need to remember. That's what we're going to do right now. We're going to collectively remember. We're going to take in mind all that we've, we've heard today and the last couple weeks about the, the priesthood of Christ. I want you just to take all that and keep that in mind and make the connection between all we've, we've studied in the scripture these last few weeks with what we do here at the table. Because it's all connected. What we commemorate here is what we've just seen on display through Hebrews this morning.